0: This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: True Nor True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil nations. For most young teenagers, the desire to fit in is typical. It's a power that draws them towards a sense of belonging. To forge one's own identity within a group can give someone a false sense of agency. It's a desire that for most people disappears with age. But sadly, for one young Ontario girl, she would never be given the opportunity and the chance to grow out of it. At just 13 years old, her life would be taken by people she thought were her friends. This is the murder of Alexandra Fergan Huey, and this is True North True Crime.
0: And welcome to episode 18 of True North, True Crime, and thanks for listening. We'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who donated coffees this week. So thank you to Jeremy, Courtney, Ariel, as well as Anonymous Donor.
1: Ariel actually became an honorary producer of the podcast by choosing the $5 a month option.
0: If you would like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod.
1: And if you can't donate, but you want to help out the podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple or subscribe and follow on your podcast platform of choice.
0: Also, feel free to say hi anytime on our social media channels. You can find us at TNTCpod on Twitter and Instagram, or shoot us an email at crime at gmail.com.
1: So tonight we are going to be talking about the murder of 13-year-old Alexandra Fergan Huey, which occurred in 2008. We chose this case because of a pretty controversial outcome at trial. We know this case garnered a lot of media attention in eastern Canada, but not so much around the world. And we really just feel that there is a lot of importance in revisiting this story.
0: We've compiled the story together with publicly available court documents as well as news articles. We'd like to shout out Louis Rosella at Mississauga News for some really good reporting. We are finding that local reporters are really able to bring humanity to their coverage, definitely more so than national coverage.
1: Yeah, support your local media outlets. We did not speak to any of the families affected by this tragedy. As a smaller podcast, we try to be um, conservative when we approach people. Uh, In this case, based on their media presence or lack thereof, we felt it was better not to.
0: So this case takes place in Mississauga, Ontario.
1: Mississauga sits along the shores of Lake Ontario and is set to the west of Toronto. The city of Mississauga is Canada's sixth largest municipality and is located on the traditional territory and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations. Mississauga is a large part of the Greater Toronto Area, which sprawls from basically Oshawa in the east to around the edge of Lake Ontario to St. Catharines in the Niagara region on the southwest. I say this because when I was a kid growing up in that area, I remember the drive from Toronto to St. Catharines and passing through all these uh, regions and municipalities.
0: Mississauga has a population of about 800,000 people and is kind of an amalgamation of many cities, towns, and hamlets that create the area. To say that this area is densely populated is an understatement. Southern Ontario actually accounts for 12 million people out of the 37 million in Canada. If you think about Canada's land size, that's a lot of people in a relatively small area. The area around Toronto is all connected with the GO train, which shuttles people in and out of Toronto as well as the surrounding areas.
1: Mississauga is home to 60 Fortune 500 companies which either have their global or Canadian headquarters there. The Peel region, as it's known, is actually a pretty safe region in Canada. In 2019, a McLean's Magazine list of 237 most dangerous cities in Canada had Mississauga ranked as 124th. So from what I understand, if you're looking for a little bit more space, some affordable housing and work opportunities, Mississauga is a good place to be. So that's Mississauga. Let's talk a little about Alexandra Ferguson huey
0: Alexandra grew up in the small, rural town of Port Perry. This is a town of about 10,000 people. She lived there with her grandparents, and her parents were divorced, but both were still in her life. Her father was living in Mississauga. To her family and her Port Perry friends, she was known as Ola. Alexandra seemed to thrive in the small-town life. She loved snowmobiling and catching frogs as a younger kid. She was described as just a regular kid, smiling and happy. Her friends and teachers in Port Perry were really fond of her.
1: In the spring of 2008, her father, Ron, made a tough decision. He decided that Alexandra would move from the small town of Port Perry to the big city of Mississauga to live with him. Even though Mississauga is just an hour's drive from Port Perry, it would probably feel like a world away for a young teen. While Alexandra boasted about moving to a bigger city to her Port Perry friends, she also felt intimidated because she didn't know anybody in Mississauga. But overall, it seemed like she was excited for the change.
0: In the summer of 2008, and at the age of 13, Alexandra and her father would move to a basement apartment on Bonnie Mead Drive in the Clarkson area of Mississauga. The new move seemed to be good for her at the start. Alexandra was chirpy, feisty, and funny, and she dressed fashionably. She stood 5 foot 4 inches tall and weighed 108 pounds. She had blue eyes that, depending on the time of day and color of her clothes, could easily turn a shade of green. Like most teens, Alexandra twirled her hair during conversation and frequently checked her cell phone for new text messages.
1: In the Clarkson neighborhood, she became known as Alex. One of her neighborhood friends would state that she fit in almost instantly. She was friendly, always willing to talk and listen to other people's problems. She was the first to arrive and the last to leave. She was extraordinary. Another acquaintance would describe Alexandra as a happy girl and added that she never got into any trouble. She was just looking to make some friends in her new neighborhood.
0: But there was some other stuff going on. It seemed that during school hours at Green Glade Senior Public School, Alexandra was excelling. She did her work. She was well-liked. But at night and on weekends, she began to hang around with a bad crowd. Her diary describes a world where she was living different lives with different groups of friends. At school, she was with her own age group. She did not want a reputation as a bad girl, something she felt she had been called at her former school. This was a fresh start for her, and she wanted to be well thought of. Her public school friends, her age group, were not doing drugs or having sex.
1: In her neighborhood, Alexandra described herself as being with a group of older friends in their late teens and early to mid-twenties. They did drugs, they had sex. It was a more adult world than school, and Alexandra enjoyed and wanted to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, and keep in mind, again, Alexandra is only 13. So we need to be clear here that Alexandra's diary is part of the public record due to being introduced at trial. Part of the diary does discuss sex.
1: We debated how much detail to use here, uh, we don't want this episode to be an examination of Alexandra's life choices, and we want to make sure we don't disrespect her memory or um, what her family has gone through. So,
0: Yeah, so in her diary, there are references to being sexually active. We want to be very clear here that in Canada, a 13-year-old cannot consent to sex. So rather than go into detail, we will just say that Alexandra may have believed she was consenting But in fact, she was being taken advantage of by one or possibly two older people.
1: Alexandra records use of uh, smoking marijuana, and uh, she describes herself as possibly being, quote, out of control. Throughout her diary, she describes her concerns about being liked and worries that if her activities were widely known, she could lose friends.
0: Her friends back in Port Perry noticed a shift as well and became concerned with her descriptions of her new neighborhood friends. Some friends even shouldered the blame for Alexandra's death. Quote, I should have pushed more. I should have done more. She was hanging out with the wrong crowd and I knew it was trouble. We are her friends and we are supposed to watch out for her, but we didn't do enough.
1: Let's talk about this group of friends. Uh, This group is known as the Tunnel Group in Clarkson, and they befriended Alexandra. She was the youngest of the group, and this group hung around the Tunnel, which is an underpass near the Clarkson Go Train Station, where they'd chat, drink, uh, smoke cigarettes, and weed. A mother of two who lives in Clarkson knew Alexandra and found it strange that she was hanging out with friends who were much older. Quote, They were a bunch of 20-year-olds and mostly young men. It was really weird and something I definitely wouldn't approve of as a parent. A neighbor said that Alexandra's father wasn't happy with the friends his daughter had made and he was actually considering moving out of the Clarkson neighborhood.
0: So we have a group of mostly young men in their late teens to mid-20s who hang out in a tunnel of a commuter train station. And this group, including some 20-year-old women had befriended a 13-year-old girl.
1: At this time, we need to introduce three people into this story.
0: The first of these three people is Michelle Liard. She was 19 years old in 2008. Although she had dropped out of Loyola Secondary School, it seemed that she was taking a high school English class in the fall of 2008. She also lived in the Clarkson area of Mississauga and was one of the Tunnel Group. She lived with her grandmother just a short walk from Alexandra's home. Michelle had a lot of interests in dark subject matter. She would talk about biting people until they bled. She would tell people she was a vampire. She wrote dark short stories about torture. The walls of her bedroom were adorned with death metal type gothy angst posters, including one poster that is handmade of colored construction paper cut in the shape of a tombstone and bears the words, "'I'll stop stabbing when you stop screaming.'" This poster clearly arises from the death metal and goth subcultures. The words are lyrics from a song entitled There's No Penguins in Alaska by the group Chiodos. The poster is on a wall that includes many other references to the same cultural context. Like the others in the Tunnel crew, Michelle liked to drink and smoke pot. A teacher stated that Michelle's demeanor in class seemed to change over time and that she would not have felt safe around Michelle at all times. This was based on her long experience as a teacher who has taught thousands of kids. Based on that experience, she could get a certain sense of kids as troubled, challenging, in trouble, frightening, dangerous.
1: In the summer of 2008, Michelle began dating an older guy. In fact, she claimed that they were engaged and would refer to him as her fiancé. This man's name was Rafael Lasoda. Rafael Lasota was 25 years old in 2008. He was about six foot two and 170 pounds. He was another one of the tunnel group, albeit skewing older than most. Rafael lived in a house on Bonnie Mead Drive, just a few blocks away from Alex. He lived with his mother, his sister, and his sister's husband. He seemed like a pretty troubled guy. Often, his alcohol and drug use was considered frequent and destructive. He had the same dark interests as Michelle. The couple would tell people they were vampires and talk about drinking human blood. Raphael and Michelle would become friends with Alexandra, even though she was just 13 years old and they were 19 and 25.
0: There is another sort of peripheral person in this story that needs to be introduced. For the purposes of this podcast, let's call him Greg. I want to quote from a court document because the judge kind of sums up this guy very quickly in a few short words. One of those frequenting the tunnel was Greg, a local thug in his mid-twenties. He and Alexandra had become friends in the fall of 2008. So another person in their twenties who has befriended 13-year-old Alexandra.
1: A number of residential break-ins occurred in the Clarkson area of Mississauga during the summer and fall of 2008. On November 5, 2008, Greg and an accomplice burglarized Rafael Lasota's residence on Bonnie Mead Drive. A digital camera and $90 were stolen. Alexandra's home had also been burglarized by Greg. A television set had been taken that belonged to her dad. Rafael reported the break-in at his home to the police. Alexandra had information relevant to this burglary and provided a statement to the police. Greg was arrested in early November 2008. Apparently he had a history with the police, so he was not granted interim release.
0: Rafael and Alexandra were subsequently threatened by friends or associates of Greg for ratting him out. Greg was reported to have said that he would windmill them all, a euphemism for killing them. Rafal and Michelle were afraid of Greg, apparently for good reason. On December 7th, 2008, while Rafal was standing in front of his home having a cigarette, Rafal was attacked by a balaclava-clad man who punched him in the face and slashed his arm with a knife, causing a deep gash. This frightened Rafal so much that he went to a flea market and bought a knife to defend himself. Shortly after this, it's
1: alleged that Alexandra tried to make nice with Greg. She was torn between testifying against him and not testifying against him. She was desperate to fit in and was scared to be known as someone who would tell on people. She had had a previous situation that also resulted in police intervention, so she was scared of being labeled a a narc, I guess is what the kids say.
0: Rafal wanted to see the case against Greg go to trial. And he wanted to speak with Alexandra about this, perhaps concerned that she would not follow through and testify against Greg. And on December 10th, 2008, at about 5 p.m., he had Michelle call Alexandra asking to meet to talk about the Greg situation. Alexandra agreed, and soon afterwards, they met at the tunnel. So let's get into what we know about Alexandra's last day and the investigation into her murder after a quick break.
1: And we are back. Before the break, we painted a picture of what Alexandra's life was like. A young girl who had moved to a bigger city. She was kind, she was a bright person, but she seemed to be caught up with the wrong crowd. And things moved fast and escalated quite quickly for her over a few short months. Keep in mind she had just moved to Mississauga in the summer of 2008. And now she found herself in a strange situation where Raphael and Michelle were scared of Greg... And they felt that if Alexandra testified against Greg, that that would put him in jail and therefore keep Rafael and Michelle safe.
0: Yeah, and Alexandra being 13, you know, freshly moved to a new big city, made some new friends that she thinks are pretty cool because they're older and have accepted her into their group. She wants to do whatever it takes to impress these people. So let's jump to December 10th, 2008. Alexandra spent a good part of the day on December 10th with another friend. The plan was that Alexandra was going to hang out and then sleep over at the apartment her friend lived in with her mother and two sisters.
1: Alexandra and her friend were watching the show One Tree Hill when Alexandra received a phone call from Michelle Liard, and this is in the late afternoon. The friend said that Alexandra left the room and was on her phone for about five minutes speaking to Michelle.
0: When Alexandra came back into the room, the friend asked Alex why Michelle had called. Alexandra said that an acquaintance of theirs named Greg from The Tunnel had made death threats against both Michelle and Alexandra.
1: Alexandra then said she was going to meet Michelle to resolve the problem. Cell phone records show that the time of this call from Michelle to Alexandra was at about 4.47 p.m. Alexandra left her friend's apartment shortly after receiving the phone call and she said she'd be back in about 20 minutes or so.
0: About an hour later, the friend tried calling Alexandra numerous times. She said one time the phone was answered, but she couldn't make out anything except some noise.
1: So what do we know about what happened? We know that Rafal asked Michelle to make the phone call to Alexandra. The three of them met at the tunnel for about 5 to 10 minutes and then walked to Rafal Lasota's home. Rafal and Michelle had been day drinking all that day. We know that Rafal Soto's mom was at work. Inside the house, though, were his sister and his brother-in-law. The brother-in-law was asleep in the lower part of the home as he worked uh, a labor job during the day that day.
0: Alexandra, Michelle, and Rafal went to Rafal's bedroom in the upper part of the house. Soon after, Michelle left and went outside, where she invited Rafal's sister to join her for a cigarette. The brother-in-law remained sleeping.
1: The brother-in-law was soon awakened by noises coming from Rafal's bedroom, which was directly above where he was sleeping. The brother-in-law feared that this was maybe another break-in or an attack on Rafal, and he ran outside to the garage and grabbed himself a sword.
0: Once outside, the brother-in-law met Michelle and Rafal's sister. He says that Michelle told him that Rafal was upstairs putting a desk together or something to explain the noise. The three of them went upstairs to check out the noise, but then Michelle blocked their way and said that Rafal was dealing with the girl who had set him up, meaning Alexandra.
1: It was at this time that Rafal was killing Alexandra. Alexandra would suffer 60 injuries that would include 37 stab wounds. Six of those wounds would have been fatal on their own. Alexandra's hands and arms showed evidence of defensive wounds showing that she had tried desperately to save her own life. The 13-year-old Alexandra had just been stabbed to death less than one month before her 14th birthday.
0: Meanwhile, downstairs, Rafal's sister was undeterred by Michelle and, concerned for her brother's safety, went inside and upstairs. She spoke to Rafal through his bedroom door. According to her, it appeared as if he had the door blocked, possibly by a piece of furniture. He spoke to her with the door only slightly ajar, apparently just 3-5 to centimeters. He said something to the effect that he was all right and would be down shortly.
1: Rafael came outside about five minutes later. He spoke calmly, and he indicated that the girl had gone home and that he was all right. He did not say what happened. Rafael's sister and her husband were very concerned. They left the house, and they drove away. They drove to a mall where there was a community police station. They discussed going in, but in the end, they did not. They just didn't know what to do or what had happened. They just knew that something bad had happened.
0: So after his sister and brother-in-law had left the house, Rafal and Michelle went back into the house. At some point, Rafal told Michelle that he had killed Alexandra. Michelle then helped Rafal to clean up. Michelle washed Rafal's bloody clothing in a bathtub while Rafal cleaned his bedroom and placed Alexandra's body into three layers of garbage bags. They also placed other bloody clothing, bedding, and Alexandra's belongings into garbage bags. This cleanup apparently took about two hours. It was done so thoroughly that neither Rafal's family nor first responding police saw evidence of the bloody crime that had happened when they looked at the bedroom.
1: Apparently they had even flipped the curtains around in the bedroom just in case there was blood spatter on them. Like they really went out of their way to hide this crime. All of the garbage bags were placed behind a shed at the back of the Lesota property. At some point, Rafael's sister and her husband returned to the house. They spoke briefly with Rafael and Michelle, who were outside on the front steps at that point. Rafael's sister and husband then left to meet Rafael's mother, Teresa, at a coffee shop when she got off work. They clearly had major concerns that something terrible had happened.
0: Teresa Lasota, Rafal's mom, came home later that evening, perhaps shortly after 11 p.m. Teresa asked her son where the girl was, and he said she had gone home. She investigated and found the garbage bags outside. She did not open them. She went back inside and confronted Rafal about the bags. He said that they were full of clothing. She pressed him and said that she was going to open the bags. At this point, Rafal broke down and told his mother that one of the bags contained Alexandra's body. Horrified, Teresa called the police on her son. When police arrived at the Lesota home, they found the dead body of 13-year-old Alexandra Fergan Huey stuffed into a garbage bag behind the shed.
1: When police were called, Rafael and Michelle ran away together. At some point, they saw a police car and Rafael panicked. He jumped over a fence and ran away fast, leaving Michelle behind. So she just went to her apartment alone. When she got there, police vehicles were outside. She did not go in until after they left. Her apartment was empty. Her grandmother, with whom she lived, had gone with the police. Michelle was alone, so she wrote a note to her grandmother and stayed at the apartment until she was picked up by the police at around 5.30 a.m. She was then taken to the police station to be interviewed as a witness to a homicide.
0: Meanwhile... Rafal remained on the run all night. He had no money and he did not have access to a car. He was found the very next day, passed out in the backyard of a woman's shelter. 911 was called. By the time police arrived, not knowing the call was for Rafal, Rafal was awake and speaking with ambulance attendants. He was cold, but otherwise unhurt. Police recognized him immediately from their morning briefing and they asked him if he was Rafal LaSoda. He responded, I'm the guy. He was arrested, cautioned for murder, and taken to a police station for questioning.
1: This is now the morning of Thursday, December 11th, 2008, and Rafal Asoda and Michelle Liard would be brought into police custody, but separately. So let's walk through Rafal's arrest first.
0: Rafal was placed in a marked police cruiser by Peel Regional Police and then was read his rights. Rafal was transported to the Peel Homicide Bureau and placed in an interview room. During the ride to the police station, Rafal would state that it's not as bad as it looks. I'm not a serial killer or murderer. The statement was spontaneous and not a response to something said by the officers. The officers did not ask any questions or make comments about this statement.
1: Once Rafal was placed in the interview room, the interviewing officer, Constable Doran, entered the room. He discussed arranging for Rafal to speak to counsel. Rafal said that he didn't know any lawyers with whom he could speak, and that he couldn't afford one anyway. Constable Doran explained that Rafael could speak to the duty counsel without charge, and Rafael wished to do so. Constable Doran said that he too wanted Rafael to speak with a lawyer before they spoke further. So these cops were really trying to tighten this up. The, um, the beat cops in the cruiser didn't speak to him when they picked him up. They waited to hand him off to the homicide investigators. And then even when he was being interviewed by homicide, the homicide cop was like, I need you to have a lawyer.
0: So Rafal did speak to a lawyer between 9.48 and 9.57 a.m., so that's, even, that's less than 10 minutes, and after the call, he had told Constable Doran that he fully understood the advice he had been given.
1: Okay, let's walk through Michelle's arrest.
0: At about 5.30 a.m., Peel Regional Police went back to the Liard residence and found Michelle in the kitchen. Police questioned Michelle briefly and then took her to a police station where she was placed in an interview room. This interview room shared a wall with the room Rafal was in. Constable David Kennedy conducted the interview of Michelle starting at about 6.51 a.m. Constable Kennedy began the interview on the basis that Michelle was just a witness. Shortly into the interview, Michelle told the constable about washing clothing and the crime scene after the killing. Constable Kennedy then cautioned Michelle on the charge of accessory after the fact murder. He arranged for her to speak with duty counsel between 8.14 a.m. and 8.25 a.m. on the basis of this caution. Constable Kennedy then continued his interview of Michelle from about 8.25 a.m. to 12.30 p.m.
1: Constable Kennedy left the interview room between 12.19 and 12.30. When he returned, he arrested Michelle for first-degree murder and re-cautioned her, meaning he read her her rights again. He did so on the basis that her jeopardy had changed from accessory after the fact to now first-degree murder. He then arranged for Michelle to speak to counsel again. She actually, at that time, named her own lawyer, and this conversation took place between about 1.05 and 1.14 p.m., after which Constable Kennedy continued the interview until about 3.40 p.m.
0: So, like we stated, 19-year-old Michelle Liard and 25-year-old Rafal Lasota were arrested for the murder of 13-year-old Alexandra fergin Huey. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the interrogations that took place.
1: First, there was Rafal. Initially, he would say that Alexandra, who was 5 foot 4 and weighed 108 pounds, attacked him with a pair of scissors, and that he, a 6 foot 2, 25-year-old adult, defended himself. But clearly, the police were not having it, and the evidence did not support his claim. He then tried to blame it on the amount of alcohol that he had consumed.
0: Eventually, he would just say he didn't know what happened or why he did it. He said, basically, he flew into a rage and couldn't stop the stabbing once it started.
1: Michelle's interrogation was a gong show. Once the police told her that she was going down for murder, she first began to act catatonic and disassociate. She just sat there staring. Then, she began screaming and wailing and banging on the wall. And as she was banging on the wall, she was calling out for Rafal and professing her love for him.
0: Michelle then told police she was pregnant and that her and Rafal were married. None of this has ever proved to be true. Eventually, she began to just shift blame onto Rafal, basically saying he went crazy and she doesn't know why he did it.
1: This interrogation can be... hmm. This interrogation can be found online, and it is painful to watch. It looks like a lot of bad acting and theatrics. However, it was actually entered into evidence by her defense team to prove how much she was not a part of this grand murder plot. And in fact, it's actually, um, her defense lawyer celebrates this move and a whole bunch of legal websites out of Ontario actually kind of talk about this move to use this interrogation in her innocence, as one of the smartest moves in Ontario criminal defense, because it was so risky.
0: So, on February 22, 2012, the trial of Michelle Liard and Rafal Lasota began in Brampton, Ontario. On the first day of the trial, Ontario Supreme Court Judge David Corbett tells the jury that there is no mystery over who killed the 13 year old victim. Mr. Lasota killed her. There is also no mystery about how she died. According to the report, several of the 37 knife wounds were fatal, including two to her neck.
1: The odd thing here is that the two of them were tried in the same trial and both faced responsibility for the murder. There were attempts to sever the trials, but they were not successful.
0: So the Crown had to present its evidence so that the jury could decide which category of murder Rafal's crime was believed to be. For Michelle Liard... The Crown needed to prove that she was more than just an accessory after the fact.
1: The Rafael case was pretty straightforward. The Crown had a confession. They had his own mother's testimony. They had his sister's testimony. They had his brother-in-law's testimony. They had a body. They knew the murder weapon. Like the judge stated, there was no denying who committed this murder. The only thing to decide was whether what Rafael did was an accident, which would be manslaughter, or whether it was a willful homicide, which is second-degree murder, or whether the murder took place in the context of another crime or premeditation, which would make it first-degree murder.
0: His defense team did try to use his alcohol consumption as a defense. They also tried to play it off that he was defending himself. But here's the thing. He blocked the door to the room that Alexandra was murdered in. The Canadian Criminal Code clearly states that if someone is confined while being murdered, it is automatically murder one. And let's face it. No one is buying that he was attacked by Alexandra or that she posed a threat in any way.
1: Yeah, the Crown kind of oscillated between it being a thrill kill, which is actually their words, not mine, or a revenge killing because of the Greg situation. But keep in mind that it's not the Crown's job to prove motive. Michelle's case was less cut and dry. The Crown presented the evidence that she lured Alexandra to her death. Therefore, she is culpable. They also showed that Michelle did nothing to stop the murder, even when she heard, quote, muffled screams coming from Rafael's bedroom. She also impeded Rafael's sister from going to the bedroom by lying and saying that he was assembling a desk, and then she actually blocked the hallway for a period of time. Previous to that, she had purposefully taken Rafael's sister out for a cigarette to get her out of the house.
0: Adding to this, the Crown presented witness statements that state that Michelle had told Alexandra one day at the tunnel that she was going to chop her up into pieces. There was also another bizarre piece of evidence, a short story that Michelle had written about a murder. Yeah, a short story about a murder. It was about a young couple obsessed with murder who kill a young woman with a knife.
1: And guess what the name of the fictional characters in this story were? They were called Misha and Raf. Yep, you heard that correct. In this fictional story, possibly about Michelle and Rafael, the characters were called Misha and Raf. Here is an excerpt from this story.
0: Raf grabbed me, pulled his arms tight around me, kissed my neck, and whispered, Want the knife next, babe? Yes, please. I took the knife and stared into her green eyes. She looked at me shaking and I said, look, I'm nice. I took the arm to my arm and sliced the top of it. I felt the burn and the blood came through. She whimpered. Then I raised my voice. Look what the fuck you made me do. Raph lightly touched my side to let me know. Good girl. We had talked about this for 10 years. Now was the time. I took the knife and pointed the tip to her skin. She tried to squirm again and rock the chair, but he held it. I dug out a little circle of skin and flesh. She had her eyes closed tightly now, muscles tense, and all made me smile. I did this ten times or so. She was getting bloody. Raff took the knife and sang a little tune. Mass murder makes me happy. Dead bodies make me happy. And with a nice swing of the knife, he sliced her arm right open. So much so that you could see the fat pop out and blood streamed everywhere. Now words cannot describe the muffled noises she started to make. She was pulling her arm so hard, except for the fact she was favoring the right one, the cut one. I thought the rope would break. He did it again to the other arm. Now there was a lot of blood. She was starting to get faint, I could tell. So to keep her on the ball, I started singing, Na-na, na-na-na, we're gonna kill you. Na-na, na-na-na, nah, we're gonna kill you.
1: So the story ends there unfinished, but do you notice that she said muffled noises after testifying about muffled screams? She also describes the green eyes of the victim, similar to how Alexandra's eyes would look sometimes. Michelle would claim that the story was for a creative writing class. However, her teacher would state for the record that she would never assign or accept any story like this from a student. In fact, she would have to report them for handing something like that in. Michelle's defense team put on a solid defense. They attempted to humanize her and paint her as just another victim in this story. They even had her testify in her own defense and like we said, they used her police interrogation tape. This was all seriously risky.
0: But would these risks pay off? Let's talk about the strange instructions from the judge, the verdicts, and where this case stands today after a quick break. And we are back.
1: Okay, this is where the case takes what I think is a bizarre twist. On March 28, 2012, before the jury retired to decide the verdict, the judge handed them a 65-page document titled, R. V. Michelle Liard and Rafael Lasota Final Jury Charge.
0: Now, jury charges are normal procedure where the judge walks through the evidence and explains what hearsay is or circumstantial evidence, motive, and also the concepts of reasonable doubt, etc.
1: So this is the part that I found frustrating, and I know I'm not alone in this, and I'm going to read it to you now. It's a little bit wordy, but, uh, you know, just bear with me. So these are the judge's words to the jury. With regards to Rafael Soda. If you are satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lasoda killed Miss Fergan Huey and that he did so unlawfully and that he did so with the intent for murder, but you are not satisfied that the murder was either planned or deliberate or committed as a part of a series of events that included Mr. Lasoda unlawfully confining Miss Fergin Huey, then you will find Mr. Lasoda not guilty of first-degree murder, but guilty of the lesser and included offense of second-degree murder. If you are satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Lasota killed Miss Fergan Huey, and that he did so unlawfully, and that he did so with the intent for murder, and that you are satisfied that the murder was either planned and deliberate or committed as a part of a series of events, including that Mr. Lasota unlawfully confined Miss Fergan Huey, then you will find Mr. Lasota guilty of first-degree murder. So essentially he's saying that you can find... Rafael Soda guilty of first-degree murder or second-degree murder. So then he moves on to talk about Michelle Liard. Michelle Liard is charged with first-degree murder. On the facts of this case, there are only two verdicts available with respect to Miss Liard. Guilty of first-degree murder or not guilty. There is no available theory of the facts of this case by which Miss Liard could be guilty of the lesser and included offenses of second-degree murder or manslaughter. Either she was a party to the planned and deliberate murder of Miss Fergin-Huey or she was not a party to the planned and deliberate murder of Miss Fergin-Huey. Further, I have just instructed you on the law of constructive first-degree murder. That theory is not available against Miss Liard. Either she was a party to the planned and deliberate murder of Miss Fergin-Huey or she is not guilty. So essentially the judge is saying that Rafael La Soda can be first or second degree murder, but Michelle Liard can only be first degree murder or not guilty. And keep in mind that accessory after the fact has been taken off the table. The reason it's been taken off the table is once she was charged with first degree murder, which is a planned murder, then she can't be an accessory after the fact to a murder she committed. So she is either part of a conspiracy to commit murder, which happened, or she is not. Whereas because Rafael was in the room, he either willfully, by plan, or by unlawful confinement, first degree, committed first-degree murder on Alexandra Fergin-Huey, or he flew into a rage and his behavior and actions caused her death, which is second-degree murder.
0: So again, the jury was given two options for the conviction of Rafal, but only one option with regards to Michelle. So on April 2nd, 2012, the jury had reached a verdict. The jury convicted Rafael Lasota, now 28 years old, of first-degree murder in the 2008 stabbing of Mississauga schoolgirl Alexandra Fergan-Huey, but acquitted his former fiancée, Michelle Liard, now 22 years old. Lasota blinked his eyes as the verdict was read, but did not cry as he had done often during the trial. Liard made no sound but dropped her head as she heard the verdict. As guards prepared to lead Lasota away, Liard turned to him and said something inaudible. He looked at her, nodded his head, and looked down. No family members for either Liard or Lasota were in the courtroom to hear the verdicts. The victim was defenseless, Justice David Corbett told Lasota. You dumped poor little Alex's body behind the shed as though it was nothing more than a sack of garbage.
1: The judge lectured Rafael Lasoda on the pain he'd caused both his and Alexandra's families, but praised Lasoda's mother for turning her son into the police after the grisly crime. Teresa Lasoda, quote, gave us all a lesson on what it is to be an ethical human being, the judge said, something, unfortunately, she did not impart on you.
0: Michelle Liard made a few brief comments as she walked free while Lasota headed off to serve a life term for first-degree murder. I feel exonerated, happy, thank you very much. When she was asked to comment on 13-year-old Alexandra, she replied, she's terribly missed.
1: As she spoke, teenage friends of Alexandra screamed obscenities at her. Moments later, she disappeared into a gray Mercedes-Benz with her lawyer, Daniel Brodsky. Rafael Lasota's lawyer, Gary Grill, declined to comment on the guilty verdict.
0: Outside of the courtroom, Alexandra's family voiced their pain and frustration. Her muffled screams for help were not answered, Alexandra's mother stated, which was clearly a comment on Michelle's testimony about Alexandra's muffled screams.
1: Alexandra's stepfather was sharply critical of the judge for his charge to the jury, which he said made the verdict a foregone conclusion. Quote, He told the jury right then and there that she was innocent. The judge told them to come back with that.
0: The Crown would attempt to appeal the decision, but sadly, in June of 2015, an Ontario court decided not to overturn the acquittal of Michelle Liard, and she walked out of the court a free woman. Michelle Liard only served three years in pre-trial custody, awaiting her first trial.
1: In July of 2014, Rafael Lasota abandoned his appeal of the decision, thus forcing him to spend the rest of his life behind bars for one of Mississauga's most senseless and chilling murders. Rafael Soda, now 36, is serving an automatic life sentence with no parole for a minimum of 25 years. There was no reason given for him abandoning his appeal. Overall, this ordeal dragged on for seven years and will affect Alexander's family and friends, and community for a lifetime.
0: Alexandra touched the community she was in. A benefit concert was held for her parents in 2009 because they couldn't afford a burial plot. The Ainsley Bailey Entertainment Group said the rock concert raised about $1,820 and allowed Alexandra to be buried and rest in peace. Some 300 people attended the funeral.
1: So clearly this story has had a large impact on many We normally point listeners in a direction that may be helpful, however, we couldn't find any funds at this time in Alexandra's honor. Alexandra Maria Kathleen Fergin-Huey passed away on December 11, 2008. She was known to many as Ola. She was the loving, beloved daughter of her parents, a sister to her brother, loving granddaughter to both sets of grandparents, and she is greatly missed by her aunts, uncles, cousins, and her many friends.
0: In these cases, it's easy for people to say, hey, we should probably talk to our kids about who they hang out with and caution them about threats. And while that is true, maybe we should also be talking to our kids and grown adult children about how violence is never an acceptable answer.
1: And petitioning our lawmakers to protect victims, protect their families, by soundly prosecuting those that would do harm in our society.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on episode 18, If you'd like to, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. Also, we love all of your five-star reviews and reading them, as well as obviously they help with our visibility.
1: Yeah, when we read those reviews, it's always great to see so many compassionate and empathetic and like-minded folks out there when it comes to opinions on criminal justice and, and a passion for helping to find missing people.
0: If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at TNTC Pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter.
1: Yeah, feel free to say hi. Our producers on the podcast are Arielle, Alberta Bly, Amy's Book Review, Alyssa Santos, Anastasia, Cindy McDee, and Giraffe3000. We will have a new episode for you in two weeks.
0: So until then, stay safe, everyone.
1: Stay safe, gang.